Good morning. This is Transform Your Talk. I'm Jeff. This is Jenna. What are we talking about today, Jenna? Well, we're going back to the uh, academia of what we do here at Signature Solutions Group and what you know we are studying up on and always working on. Today, we're talking about this age-old but new idea called restorative justice, and we have brought in a very good friend, and I like to call him an expert in the field. I'm sure lots of people would. I'm sure some wouldn't. I don't know, but... We're, we're joined today by Terry Doxey. He's going to talk to us about restorative justice, his work with it, and maybe what we can do with it moving forward. But before he jumps in, I'm going to give us a little historical context and then let you take it from there, Terry. You want to say hi to our listeners? Uh, hi, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Terry and Jeff, um, restorative justice kind of started way back in our ancestry in this country with the Native Americans that were here and in other countries all over the world, in New Zealand, Canada, even in Japan hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it's a different process for justice is my understanding or conflict resolution. Um, I know in Japanese culture, for example, if there is a conflict or someone commits a a harm or, you know, a crime to somebody else, their system's a little different than ours where that offender has to, well, first they take responsibility for what they did, but then they have to negotiate directly with the person they caused the offense to with a judge present. And then the judge takes all of that into consideration and makes that mostly part of the sentence. So that's different than our U.S. system. In Canada and with along with the Mennonites and in New Zealand, they use this more formalized restorative justice process And they've been using it for 40, 50 years that we know of, and probably much more before that, along with the Native American culture. So I kind of want you to tell us, what is restorative justice nowadays, and what are we doing with it, Terry? Well, the restorative justice, actually the restorative practices that are done are uh, based on community first. Okay. Whereby any harm done between individuals impacts the community. So the goal of the community is to repair that harm and uh, not necessarily bring things back to the way they were before, but to actually improve uh, the community itself by making the parties aware of how their actions impact others, how they can uh, change that, uh, change their actions. So it, it doesn't have a negative impact. And also to figure out ways to basically manage better your behaviors so that you don't have these impacts. Maybe we should talk about what this really is because in the American system of justice, we, f- we have a victim and that victim is typically a singular entity, usually a person, and we have a prosecutor and the prosecutor represents the people. So the harm done is to the people. However, the victim end of it is usually just one or a few people. And our system is based on punishment. Yep. So we bring somebody to account for their crime, and then we punish them uh, most likely either through some monetary means or by imprisonment. Yep. And society really isn't involved, even though the prosecutor is representing the people. This new model, this new old model, is a different focus. Yes. As you say, the community. Yes. So the victim becomes the community. So when I commit a crime against you, Terry, it not only involves you, but it involves your neighbors, your family members, 
your church-going friends, your relatives, your, you know, and so on and so forth. In addition to that, the person who committed it is also impacted by this. And the goal is to assimilate that person back into the community. I mean, they want someone who is producing for the community. That's what the community would like. So to for them, the idea of sending them away and putting them in a prison or a jail somewhere does not help the community because they're no longer community. Com- uh, Contributing to the community. They're taken away. Yes. And the crime is really acknowledged not. There's no accountability for it. And uh, the punishment sort of fits the crime, but there's no healing that takes place. Right. That's exactly right. And the the community is now down one person. Right. So the idea is to uh, hear from the what they call the stakeholders. Yes. And I know this started with victim-offender conferencing. So... um, Describe what that looks like in, in this model, the, the victim offender conference. Okay. Well, first off, it doesn't have to be a judge that monitors this. Okay. And again, the monitor is just, it's not really participating or telling people what to say. What happens is that the two parties involved have to both take accountability for what happened, that they understand that their actions impacted the other person, how it impacted the other person, and how we can change this and what we can do moving forward to improve the community. So when I say it doesn't try to put the community back to the way it was, it's not. It's trying to make it better. Okay. So, again, this idea of a conference, it's a participatory thing. Yes. We're not doing this in isolation with one party and then going into another place with the other party. We're having everybody come together in the same yep. place. Yep. It, it's basically in a simple situation, you've got your, uh, I don't want to say mediator, but essentially it's that same type of person. Facilitator. Again, facilitator. Yes. And you've got the two parties that are involved. Each party, as a mediation, gets to talk uninterrupted. And then we have, they have a conversation to figure out, okay, where do we go wrong? What we can do to change it? Are we willing to do that? Now, in an informal one, the two parties are going to agree to it and agree to something, whatever they come up with. Because that's an important part of it. The both parties have to buy into it, and it has to be something that they both can do. Now, that kind of gets lost in our judicial system, doesn't it? That uh, victim can sit there in court and go, okay, well, my offender is going to prison for 10 years. I sat in court. I heard it all. But that victim is left, like you said, with that void, not only in their family, in their community, but they don't get to heal. That is taken from them. Well, in the judicial system, the judge or the people determine the restitution. Yes. In your model, in the model that we're talking about, the restitution, if there is any, is agreed to by the parties. That is correct. The, the victim gets a voice in what that right. restitution should be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They both have a voice in it and in, in what it's going to be. And again, it has to be something they both can do. As in, in, the one, in the restorative practice sessions that I did, one of the strongest things that I had to encourage the parties was, it has to be something you can do. 
do not agree to something right. you know you can't do because particularly with school age kids, oh, I'll I'll do this. Well, well, we won't talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, you're in the same classroom. <laughs> what are you going to do when the teacher puts the two of you together in a group setting? Uh, okay. So it has to be something that they can do. It has to be practical. And the and, facilitator helps them. Yeah, point out the fact that, okay, and and what I did usually was just question about it. Okay, like the example I just gave, is the teacher going to be okay with that? Probably not. Okay, well, let's come up with something. You guys need to do it, though. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You'll have to come up with something. In in those processes that are uh, invoked in the school system, typically that is an alternative to uh, dispelling the student. Is that right? Well, it shouldn't be that way. It's not supposed to be in lieu of being expelled. That right. that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be this is this is what we're going to do for what happened. Uh-huh. So figure it out. But to define it for the school systems involved, for them to adopt this process. And I understand that you were involved in this process and it didn't go exactly the way you wanted, wanted it to recently. We won't name <laughs> names, but. <laughs> but that wasn't with the schools. Okay. That, w- that wasn't with the schools. The schools were very good about it and they gave us a lot of latitude when it came to that. And they never once, in the schools I worked in, Never once did they tell me that if they don't reach an agreement, they're being expelled. Okay. I never had that situation arise. How, how is it described then to the parents, let's say, of the, the victim and the offender then? I had nothing to do with that. Okay. That was one of the things that uh, we were hands off when it came to that. The, the, the administrators had to reach out to the, to the uh, parents. We had nothing to do with that, and they never shared me, with me what they said, told the parents. I'm assuming they just said that in that we, we were we just sent them to this outside resource that we're using now, and I think that's probably what they said. Do you suppose that? And and I, my background is as an educator as well, prior to going to law school, similar to yours, Terry. Do you think that parents, you know, struggle with this because? They weren't necessarily taught to resolve conflict this way. And so it's like, okay, great, my kid's not getting expelled, but they're talking with their community about their feelings. Like, do you think it's too hard for parents to wrap their heads around because we weren't taught that? I think that it depends on the parent. Ah. I, I, I just think that some parents would be happy for it, and there are other parents that are going to blow a gasket. Ah. And that's where the administrator has to know which parents of which students, and they're the ones that filter to us which ones we're going to see. I see. So there was no weeding out process done by us in the sense of who we got to see. This is not a widely accepted nor practiced um, procedure in the criminal courts in this country. Oh, absolutely. You are totally Uh, right with that. (laughs) The closest we get to that, as near as I can tell, and I don't practice criminal law, is the victim statement. I would agree. Victim impact. And recently, uh, I know in our state, in the Oxford shooting case, it was, there was sentencing and may still be going on. 
there's an unlimited number of people who can waltz into court as the victims, and this may include the community members, and they can read a statement or talk to the judge and the offender about what it is that happened and how it affected them. Mm-hmm. That's the closest we get to this. Yep. Yep. We, we barely hear from the uh, perpetrator, except right before he's or she is sentenced, when they say they're sorry, they wish they wouldn't have done that. Yep. And that doesn't seem to be a very healing uh, process to me. I, I agree completely. So with how that. do we get, and this goes to the schools and any other uh, uh, government or non-governmental entity we might think about imposing this practice on or inviting uh, them to practice. How do we get them to do that? How do we, how do we change the paradigm there to get them, the, the offenders and the victims to start thinking about a circle where everybody shares their feelings? Well, one of the comparisons I always make when I was doing presentations on this was our 1990s zero tolerance program because we had that. And and it just snowballed to the point where everybody was getting expelled for anything that they did. Right. Anything. And so now the pendulum is going back the other way. I think what's happening is that the communities are actually looking for something other than zero tolerance because... It just isn't working. Because 10 or 20 years later, we're still dealing with the same issues. Oh, yes. And Nothing's it, changed. Nothing changed. It, is it fair to say that in the outside the school world, it's the same with that let's be tough on crime aspect and how the pendulum's swinging that way as well, and we're seeing effects of that in the adult grown-up world? I mean, we were hard on crime, right? It's the same idea, isn't it? I Absolutely. That's exactly it. Prosecute them and put them away. Put them away. Throw away the key. Yep. Do away with parole. The interesting thing is when we... And it doesn't work. It doesn't. (laughs) And, you know, part of it also, it's not just that the victim, while they may get to say their impact statement, and they may hear from the offender one time, and, you know, that's it. Then we take that offender, we put them in prison, we take away their name, we take away their identity. They're described by a number. Where does the healing come in for them? Where does the rehabilitation in our system actually come in for them? But there isn't. Exactly. That that isn't the point of zero zero tolerance. That isn't the point of it. But at the same time, we we boast that we have a rehabilitative system. So I, I don't think we actually have all those things, and Jeff is right. How do we make this the widespread way of doing things like they've done it for 40 and 50 years in other countries with great, great success. One step at a time. Yeah. One community at a time. One school at a time. One classroom at a time. I think you're right about that. That's really, I'm telling you, what we've seen in the schools, when you start them and you have them doing uh, restorative practices in the elementary, and then you have restorative circles that that they do. They know how to resolve their issues. They know how to do that. They know solutions because they're the ones coming up with the solutions. It isn't an outside source that's telling them, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. They're coming up with it on their own saying, no, this is satisfactory for me. This is what I want. It seems to me that the more people that are call, uh, called stakeholders and are involved in the process and the more voice they have and the, the more healing that can occur because we aren't sitting on our voice. We're, you know, we're saying what we, what's on our mind. Yes. And uh, 
the community is more invested in the outcome, are they not? Yes, okay. and that's that's the whole point. The community is invested in it. It's for the betterment of the community. It's not just one person that we're trying to help. It's the whole community because, as we go back to, everyone contributes to the community. Everyone does. So whether we call it restorative justice or victim offender conferencing or circles and uh, sharing circles or whatever we call it, what can you let just for the listeners walk us through one? Walk us through a typical RJ session that you've been involved in. Okay, now there's a big difference between an informal. Uh, my best example is informal is it's recess time. Fourth grade class, a couple of kids get into it playing soccer. Informally, I go over, I talk to them. I go, okay, who wants to go first? Tell me what happened. Both of you get a chance. Who wants to go first? Playground monitor. Yep. But it resolves it right then, doesn't carry it over to the classroom. They acknowledge what they did. Both of them have to acknowledge it. That's part of it, the accountability I'm sorry I stole Johnny's ball. Or I'm sorry I knocked him on his behind. <laughs> <laughs> and then took his ball. And then took the ball. Yeah. But, yeah, okay, so, guys, you both told me what happened. What, do you, what can you do moving forward so we don't have this kind have to have a conversation about this? What can you come up with? What about little Johnny's bloodied on the playground so badly? Not enough for medical attention, but he's bleeding. The parents get called to the school, right? Now you have the victim, the offender, and their parents at the school. Let's talk about a more formal RJ process. What okay. happens then? In a formal process, what I do is I talk to each individual party that's involved. Okay? Just them. I don't want the background noise because you're going to get a lot of background noise. <laughs> so I talk to each of them individually. Then I bring them together and then we discuss, go through the same thing that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. Same, same process. The difference is that I, I talk to them individually first. Also, the, the, the last difference is if they come up with an agreement, I will write the agreement up in their words. They will sign it. So when you talk to the individuals separately, I'm guessing that is sort of what we do in mediation intake sessions. Exactly. You're getting the story. Information to get get the story without everybody else being around. And then do you once you have the story, do you bring the students with their parents and the and maybe the principal or assistant principal and the teacher? And Usually all? it's just the students. Usually I do not bring the parents in unless it's that far out of hand. But even with a bloody nose, I wouldn't bring the parents in at that point. All I'm trying to do is find out what the students, what happened, how it can be resolved, what we can, what can we do moving forward. Okay. Now, Terry. Now, I, but that's not the end of it. Uh-huh. So once I have an agreement, within two weeks, I will go back to each student and ask them, how is it going? Is it being fulfilled? It's not formal when I do that. It's nothing more than I see them in the hallway, I give them a thumbs up, thumb sideways, thumb down. Meaning, yeah, not sure, it's not going at all. And so there's always a follow-up with it. We don't just release them. 
We want to know if they're actually doing what they've agreed to do. If, they're, if they aren't doing it, then I bring them back in and we figure out, okay, why it broke down and what can, we, what can you guys come up with that, that will work? We want something that'll work that you can do. The parents are not involved. That surprises me. No, parents are not involved. Okay, because when I, when I sat in the principal's office during my many years of elementary school, I remember my parents being called almost every time. Did you go to the office a lot when I you were a kid? I went to the kid? office a lot. <laughs> and so the, but, I, the idea was I sit with it at school. My parents are aware of it. By the time I get home, they've stewed on it all day, and now I'm going to be punished. So that's the old system, right? Right. But the other thing, too, is the school administration will contact the parent and say, there was an incident today at, the, at recess. We had our RJ person take care of it. They got an agreement. If you have, you know, you can talk to your son or daughter when they get home. If you have any questions about it, give me a call. There was blood. So okay. <laughs> if, we, if we scale that up to say, and, and this is a common um, example in the books I've read about restorative justice. If you scale this up to the 20-year-old that robbed your family store that you own and you know stole, say, $3,000 in merchandise, and you're sitting down to have a conversation with them about that, how it affected you, I think that maybe this is what you're getting at, Jeff. If somebody steals from you and your family, now your family is that community and their stakeholders in that situation. In this scaled up, scaffolded up version, would that be an appropriate time to bring in those community members to say, when you stole from my dad in our family store, I didn't get that backpack for school that I needed. Right. I didn't get the lunch that I needed because of that act. Is that where you would involve those kids, the grandparents, the people that are directly affected by that ripple effect. You can do that, but you have to be cautious about the fact of overwhelming the yes. person who did this. That, and that's, that, that's, that you, at, when you're an RJ, that's the thing you have to balance. Can this, can this person, are they capable of handling the fact that there might be six people sitting in that, in that room and you're thinking in terms of they're against me? So that's where well, you have this conversation when you have that conversation with the parties that you have to make it clear to them that this is the, the, the scenario that you're walking into. Right. This is the situation that you're going to be looking at when you go in that room. Especially in Can that, you handle that? Especially in that intake process where you say, you know, Joe, Bob, you robbed from this family. This family is interested in talking to you too. Yes. Is that something that's okay with you to yep. hear their voices and understand it's going to be the dad, the mom, the sister, and the cousin or whoever. If that's established within that intake process and everybody knows it's going to occur, do you think this process works well even in those scaffold up criminal situations, family situations, and things like that? Yes, because it, they're made aware of what they've done. Now, when they're in there, Maybe their mom and their dad, or maybe a brother or sister, sister will be in there too. So they will get to see. So again, they're part of the community. And that's the part I'm trying to get at, is that offender has community members and stakeholders right. that want to see their son or daughter, whomever, 
get better and be yes. a better community member and better citizen. Yep. So I, I think this process is awesome, and I really appreciate you sitting down with us today to talk to us about it. Yeah, we could talk for another three hours. <laughs> yes, we well, could. Well, this is part one, and we expect to have more parts to this very important and interesting and age-old uh, circle process because people have been doing this, in my estimation, for decades or hundreds of years hundreds. in their own culture and their own communities because it makes sense and it heals and it allows people to release what they're holding on to in a safe environment. So we could use it in government as well and between nations. So yes. Thank you, uh, Terry. And we will probably be back to this again soon. Right, we Jenna? will. And thank you for the great work that you've done. Well, because you. getting those second and third graders to become active thinking citizens about problem resolution, conflict resolution, solving their own problems. Boy, I hope they take that into the adult world because mm -hmm. our world would be a much better place if we could all talk through and identify those things right yeah. away. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank, Thank you, you for Transforming Talk. This is Jeff. This is Jenna. Until Peace next out. Time.